all this world reveals and wars to own all I want thought gain I have counted lost spent and worthless now compared to
Good to hear you all uh, chatting, and you're very welcome. Uh, let me just read out a little thank you card uh, before we start. This is uh, from Tom, Beth, and Phoebe, and Rosanna Pickett. Just says, Dear Church family, we would like to say a big thank you for all the love, prayers, meals prepared, cards, and gifts you have showered our family with since Rosanna has been born. We thank and praise God for such a loving church family. I'll put that on the notice board afterwards. Uh, just to remind you that we will be uh, closing our service by singing together outside, and again, we'll leave through these doors, and there are song sheets there for you to pick up as you go. And then uh, we are meeting this evening again at 6 p.m. This is the uh, perfect way for you to get over the disappointment of England losing the football this afternoon. You can come and we'll look at these psalms of encouragement together, 126 to 128, and I do hope that you can join us at 6. And then uh, we've mentioned this a few times already, just a reminder, the church AGM is Thursday, June 24th at 7.30, and ahead of that, the minutes from the last meeting are now displayed on the notice board, plus the agenda for this meeting. And we have also had applications for church membership from Gerald and Rita Tanner. And again, that's displayed on the notice board. And if you could please return your voting forms for the re-election of deacons, uh, if you haven't already done that, thank you. And then, slightly further in advance, just another mention of the Tasty Desserts afternoon, July the 6th on a Tuesday. And that's an aid of Taste an organization that we support as a church providing clean water in Nigeria. We've come here not just to uh, meet one another and, and say hello, but to worship the Almighty God. And our first song calls us to bow before the majesty of heaven. Merciful and mighty. 
Let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful that we don't serve a temporary king. We don't belong to a temporary kingdom. We praise you because our king and his kingdom are eternal. And so our hope and our joy is eternal. We ask you will help us to live for eternity. So much around us tempts us to live for just the present, to turn our backs on your eternal word, to ignore the eternal future, and just grab what we can here and now. Father, will you help us to live bigger and fuller lives than that? Lives that truly make the most of the present because we live by your eternal word and because we are preparing for an eternal future. In this time together this morning, as we give you our attention by listening carefully to your word, will you deepen our trust in you, deepen our commitment to you and your word, so that we're ready to stand firm on the truth of your word. Amen. We're going to have a reading now from the New Testament, from the book of Galatians. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul uses some strong language to speak about the importance of sticking with God's word because it truly is from God. Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 to 12. Galatians 1, 1 to 12. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ.
Paul is very clear that we are to stick with what God has said, no matter what any human leader might say, including Paul himself, if he was to deviate from the good news about Jesus. And our next song is a way to reaffirm our commitment to this gospel that Paul was speaking about. i 
Now the Sunday School will be moving next door to continue their time of worship. A few weeks ago in the book of Deuteronomy, we came across a test. In chapter 8, Moses explained how we are tested by both scarcity and by success. When things are going well and when things are going badly, our dependence on God will be tested. We all say that we depend on Him, of course, but when we go through times of scarcity and times of success, those tests reveal the state of our hearts. In scarcity, will we grumble against God or will we trust that He knows best? In success, will we acknowledge that our success comes from God or will we decide actually it was down to us? That was the dependence test. And in our passage this morning, we find a second test. The loyalty test. We all say we're loyal to the Lord, of course, but we must be ready for that loyalty to be put to the test. So turn with me to the end of Deuteronomy chapter 12. In the first part of the chapter, Moses has been speaking about how the Israelites are to worship the Lord when they arrive in Canaan. They're not to be like the Canaanites who worship indiscriminately on the hills and under every spreading tree. Instead, God's people are to focus and center their worship on just one place, the place the Lord your God will choose. And now, as we pick up in chapter 12, verse 29, Moses prepares the people for the loyalty test. Chapter 12, verse 29. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hits. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams, appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands, 
and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the people around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death, and then the hands of all the people. Stone them to death because they tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, the troublemakers have arisen among you and have led the people of that town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, You must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. You must destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. You are to gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. That town is to remain a ruin forever never to be rebuilt, and none of the condemned things are to be found in your hands. Then the Lord will turn from his fierce anger, will show you mercy, and will have compassion on you. He will increase your numbers as he promised on oath to your ancestors, because you obey the Lord your God by keeping all his commands that I am giving you today and doing what is right in his eyes. This is God's word. And maybe our reaction, as it can be so often in this book, is to wonder, what could this possibly have to do with us? And we will get to that, but first we need to know what it meant for these Israelites as they prepare to cross the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. The issue this passage is dealing with is this, the Lord's way or their way. You can see that if you look again at the middle of chapter 12, verse 30. Moses says, don't look at the Canaanites and say, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. So this is not about abandoning the Lord, at least not officially. All the Israelites claim to worship the Lord. This is about how they try to worship and follow him. Are they going to try and do it his way or the Canaanites' way? 
The rest of verse 31 gives us a little summary of the Canaanites' way. In worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. In other words, trying to worship the Lord the Canaanites' way is impossible. He cannot be worshipped their way because he hates the stuff they do. It is not acceptable to him. The only way to worship the Lord is to worship him his way. You can see that in chapter 12, verse 32. Moses says, see that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. What that means is the only way to truly follow the Lord is to follow him according to his word. Because Moses here is speaking God's word to the people. If you glance down to chapter 13, verse 4, you'll see the commands Moses is giving the people are the Lord's commands. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. So the message here is that we cannot follow the Lord if we look at the way if we look at the world the way the culture around us does and live like the culture around us does. Because the culture around us approves of and it does all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. We saw a moment ago, chapter 12, verse 31, gave an example of that in Israel's context. The Canaanites burn their sons and daughters in the fire. How horrific. And it was horrific. But that was nothing compared to how the culture around us treats children. Today we live in a world where the leading cause of death every year is not cancer, it's not old age, it's not COVID. The number one cause of death every year is abortion. Parents deciding to take the life of their own children. It's legal, and we don't talk about it, we don't debate it or question it. We just carry on doing it in vast numbers. Just in England, in the first six months of 2020, we aborted 104,604 babies. 104,604 babies in six months in this country alone. Think of the thousands of times that COVID deaths have been mentioned in the news. Have you ever heard that abortion statistic mentioned in the news? Of course you haven't. But during the pandemic, the government introduced DIY home abortions so we didn't have to stop killing babies during lockdown. It's a holocaust that surpasses anything done by pagans in the ancient world. And what they did was so appalling to the Lord that he regularly draws attention to it in Scripture. Imagine how he views what we do to our children today 
in the name of personal convenience. And imagine how he views all the thinking that goes along with abortion. The worldview that has created a place for abortion. The fact that our children grow up being told marriage is just one of many contexts for sex. That's because sex is basically a recreational activity. So it doesn't need to involve any real commitment to the other person. It doesn't have any bigger purpose like forming deep bonds between two people which then creates stable loving families. All that matters with sex is you getting the satisfaction you want. And if that produces a baby and raising that baby seems inconvenient to you, then just end the baby's life. And connected to that is the idea that whatever gives you sexual satisfaction must be good. And so a homosexual lifestyle is as legitimate as any other lifestyle. And because all that matters with regard to sex is you pursuing what you want, well then, if you don't feel comfortable in your body, you do well to mutilate it and make it fit the way you feel. So never mind abortion. When we do allow children to survive all the way to birth, we then indoctrinate them with a bunch of lies about how to live and how to use their bodies. We might not be burning our children in the fire, but we've come up with plenty of other ways to destroy them. How dare our society ever look down its nose at the Canaanites? And the point here is that those who profess to be God's people better not go along with what God's word says is detestable. It's not possible to do that and still follow the Lord. And we all know, don't we, that our loyalty to the Lord and His Word are tested regularly. The society around us challenges our loyalty all the time. But what this passage is going to say is that the challenge isn't only going to come from the society around us. It will very likely come from some of those who claim to be God's people. And the rest of this passage asks us, are you ready for the test? And we hear about three ways this test might come, all from those who claim to be God's people. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 5 ask, are you ready for the test from a persuasive and powerful leader? Chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams, appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. 
The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. To find out whether you love him is literally to know whether you love him. The previous test in chapter 8 used the same language. And we notice there, it's not saying the Lord himself doesn't know. The point is, he tests them to reveal whether they love him. To bring it out into the open. And verse 1 says this test comes about through a person who appears among you. This is not a Canaanite, it's a fellow Israelite. Someone who claims to worship the Lord, but they will encourage you to worship the Lord in the Canaanite way. Which means worship the Lord along with a bunch of other gods and the detestable things that go with that worship. And in fact, this person doesn't just claim to worship the Lord. They have impressive credentials as a prophet or one who foretells by dreams. A prophet is someone who brings words from God or at least claims to. And dreams were a well-known way that God could speak to people. One example would be Joseph in the book of Genesis. As a young man, Joseph had dreams that truly did reveal what God had planned for his future. That his family would come to depend on him and even bow down to him. And here, this prophet or foreteller by dreams isn't just all talk. He announces a sign or wonder and it takes place. It happens. Very often in the Old Testament, God's word was accompanied by signs and wonders. So this is a very persuasive situation. How are the Israelites to know this prophet or dreamer is a fake? They will know purely and simply because what the prophet or dreamer says disagrees with what God has already said. Remember, the Israelites have a long history with the Lord. He has made himself known to them. He has communicated with them. He has revealed his will to them. Think of the Ten Commandments. So it doesn't matter how persuasive a prophet might be. It doesn't matter how much spiritual power seems to accompany their ministry. If they're leading you away from what God has said... If they're leading you to follow him in a way that's actually the way of the Canaanites, then you mustn't listen to them. Back in the book of Exodus, when the Lord sent Moses and his brother Aaron to Pharaoh to demand that Pharaoh let God's people go, the Lord gave Moses and Aaron signs to perform in front of Pharaoh to show that they came with God's authority. One of those signs was that Aaron's wooden staff became a snake. But the book of Exodus tells us when Aaron performed that sign, Pharaoh's magicians were able to copy it. Their staffs became snakes too. And there's no indication in the book of Exodus that it was a trick. It's presented to us as something they were actually able to do. So according to the Bible, it is possible to have some degree of spiritual power, 
to be able to perform signs and yet not be a true messenger of the Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks about false messiahs and false prophets who perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, even God's people. The last book of the Bible speaks about a beast who's actually a servant of Satan, but who's able to perform great signs. So then, according to the Bible, someone can look like a messenger of God, they can sound like a messenger of God, they can even display spiritual power that seems to prove they're a messenger of God, they can have all that and yet not be a messenger of God. So how do we avoid being led astray? Chapter 13, verse 4, it is the Lord your God you must follow and Him you must revere Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. The Lord your God has already made himself known. He has already given his instruction. Hold fast to that. Follow that. Obey that. Whatever any prophet or dreamer might say. Today we often emphasize the authority of church leaders. And the New Testament agrees. It tells us to submit to their authority. But only so long as they lead according to God's word. If any church leader deviates from God's word, you stick with God's word. We heard that earlier from Galatians chapter 1. And that means we all have a responsibility to learn and understand God's word. At the very least, to follow along carefully as the preacher preaches from God's Word. So that you can confirm that what he's saying is God's Word. And this is important not just when you sit here on Sunday. It's important when you watch preachers on the internet. Just because someone has a massive church massive views on their YouTube channel, maybe even a massive church where powerful things seem to happen. Just because they have all that, don't assume that everything they say must be trustworthy. Check that what they say agrees with what God has already said in His Word. One of the most common deviations from God's word is to tell people that if they have faith in Jesus, they will never be poor and they'll never be sick. And if they are poor or sick, it's because they haven't got enough faith in Jesus. That's going back to Canaanite ways of worship. The Canaanites believed if you make the right offering to Baal or Ashtoreth or Dagon, They'll give you the result you want. Good crops or healthy babies or whatever. But the Lord our God isn't like that. He works for our good all the time. But the Bible is clear that his good plans for us may lead us through poverty and illness. The Lord promises to carry out his plans for us. 
He does not promise to carry out our own plans for ourselves. Any teacher who teaches otherwise is leading you away from God's word. And when you hear people in the news who claim to be Christians, who even claim to be evangelical Christians, evangelical is supposed to indicate that someone takes the Bible as their final authority. But don't accept what someone says just because they're introduced as an evangelical Christian. Make sure they're not encouraging you to abandon God's word in favor of the ways of the culture around us. Our loyalty to the Lord can be tested even by those who claim to speak for the Lord. And sometimes those people can be persuasive and powerful. We have to be ready for that. And that's why one of the most frequent commands in the book of Deuteronomy is this. Be careful to follow the Lord's instructions. Sixty-five times we're told that in this book. As God's people, our loyalty is ultimately to Him and His instructions. No matter what persuasive or powerful leaders come and try to lead us on a different path. But what are we to do with those leaders who try to lead us astray? Well, verse 5 says, That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. First of all, notice why this is so serious. It's rebelling against the Lord and leading his people to do things that he hates. That's the main reason what these false prophets are doing is so serious. But there's another reason. God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And yet these false teachers, by leading people away from the Lord, are leading them back into slavery. Going into the ways of the Canaanites is going into slavery to sin. And so for God's sake and for their own good, the Israelites are to purge the evil from among them. It's like a cancer they need to cut out before it spreads and makes them all sick. And the way to purge the evil is to put the false prophet to death. What are we supposed to do with this? Are we supposed to be putting false teachers to death? But we've been failing in our duty? Should we be trying to catch up with a backlog of false teachers who are still out there doing their thing? Well, the answer is no. As God's people today, we are not supposed to be executing anyone. When these Israelites cross the Jordan River and take over Canaan, they will be the rulers of the country. They will be the governing authorities. And as the governing authorities, they will have the sword of God's justice in their hands. 
during this pandemic, one of the most often quoted Bible verses has been Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Well, when the Israelites take over Canaan, they will be the governing authorities. And that means, as Romans 13 goes on to say, they will have the authority to punish wrong. Even so far as the ultimate punishment, the death penalty. That was the situation in the Old Testament when Israel was a nation. But it is not the situation today. God's people are no longer one nation living on one piece of land. Today, God's people are drawn from every nation. God's people are spread out across the whole globe. And while some Christians might be involved in government, God's people are not the governing authorities. And so they do not bear the sword of God's justice, nor are they supposed to try to do that. How do we know that? We know it because the New Testament tells us. The people of God today is the church of Jesus Christ. And when a man or woman seeks to lead God's people away from God's word, the church is not to execute that person. God hasn't given the church that authority. He hasn't put the sword of justice in the hands of the church. The way the church purges the evil from amongst it is to put the false teacher out of membership. The church refuses to accept the authority of that false teacher. The church refuses to endorse that teacher as a true member of God's people. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he explains this to the church in Corinth. The background to this is there was some blatant sexual sin going on in the church. The person doing it showed no intention of turning from their sin. They were unrepentant. They haven't just fallen into sin and then regretted it. They're determined to carry on going in their sin. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells them to put that person out of membership. And then he says to the church, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So the church is not to try and deal with sin outside the church. As Paul says, that's not our business. But it is our business to deal with sin in the church. Including false teaching that leads God's people away from God's word. And the very last command there in the small quotation marks is from Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5. The NIV has translated it slightly differently there, but there's no doubt Paul is quoting our passage in Deuteronomy. Expel or root out is another way of saying purge. The way the church purges the evil from amongst it is to put the person out of membership. That is how the church upholds God's honor. 
That is how the church cuts out the cancer of rebellion against God before it spreads and makes us all sick. We don't let our loyalty to a leader draw us away from loyalty to the Lord. Even when that leader is persuasive and powerful. And what we've just said about leaders applies to the other ways this loyalty test might come, according to our passage. Verses 6 to 11 ask us, are you ready for the loyalty test to come from a relative or a friend? Look at verse 6. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods. Gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known. Gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other. Do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. Here, the treachery comes from someone we're close to. Verse 6 says, this relative or friend entices you. That's an intimate word. This is someone you love. But they're enticing you away from the Lord. And again, in the context, this is someone who claims to belong to the Lord. But they're encouraging you to join in with things the Lord hates. And when the test comes this way, it's probably going to be much stronger than it would come when it comes through a teacher or a church leader. Our ties to family and friends produce deep loyalty in us. And so the question is, are you prepared to lose a friendship in order to stick with God and his word? Or would you break loyalty with God to keep that friendship? Jesus Christ loved Peter. But when Peter tried to talk Jesus out of obeying his father and going to the cross, Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus refused to let his dear friend entice him into disobedience. You and I have to be prepared to show the same kind of loyalty to our Father in heaven. Notice though, the verse 8 also calls us not to shield this friend or relative. How might we be tempted to shield them? What might we be tempted to shield them from? Well, as we've seen already in previous verses, when the Israelites are in Canaan, the person who entices others to sin is to receive the death penalty. That's repeated in verses 9 to 11. And again, when it comes to God's people today, the church, the penalty is not death, it's being put out of the church. We refer to that as church discipline. And if a relative 
or a dear friend has done something that needs to receive church discipline, it can be very easy to object and take the side of your relative or friend. Not because you believe they're being falsely accused, not because you believe the church is carrying out the process badly, but because they're your friend. They're close to you. In that situation, it's easy for loyalty to your friend to take precedence over loyalty to the Lord and his word. One writer says, in situations like that, a false sense of pity and mercy can prompt us to call for no action to be taken. To call for the unrepentant sin to be ignored. Even though it's actually rebellion against God. Even though sin that's not dealt with is like a cancer that destroys the church. That's why ignoring unrepentant sin is not true pity or mercy. Now, I'm not saying these things because there's any looming case of church discipline. There isn't, at least not that I'm aware of. I'm saying these things because the book of Deuteronomy has raised them. And you and I need to consider them carefully. Because there may well be a time when church discipline is required and it may well involve a person close to you. If that were to happen, and if a long process had been followed, urging the person to turn from their sin, but if finally that person remained unrepentant, where would your loyalty lie? Would you support biblical discipline for the honor of God's name, for the health of his church, and ultimately for the good of the person who's sinning, as they're disciplined in hope that the discipline will bring them to repentance? Would you support that or would you resist the process of discipline and seek to shield your friend from the consequences of their sin? Finally and briefly, verses 12 to 18 show us the loyalty test may come from a crowd. Look at verse 12. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, the troublemakers have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. You must destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. You are to gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. That town is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt, and none of the condemned things are to be found in your hands. Again, this is a town in the territory of Israel. 
It's not some pagan place outside of Israel. And in this case, it's not an individual who's leading the people astray. A whole town has jumped on the bandwagon. This is a movement. But it's a movement in the wrong direction. Away from the Lord and his word. And into the ways of the Canaanites. And if the great danger of false teachers is that they speak with authority and power, if the danger of the friend or relative who tries to entice you is that you love them, the danger of a movement is that it can just seem irresistible. We can feel, well, if this is the way things are going, maybe it's right. If everyone seems to be heading that way, there must be something to it. If everyone's having this weird spiritual experience or accepting this new teaching or abandoning this part of what the Bible says, then maybe I ought to go along with it. I don't want to get left behind. I don't want to be an outdated Christian. And so, picking up on the examples from earlier, if there seems to be a movement within the wider church to revise or to edit or to update the Bible's clear teaching on sex, it can be so tempting to go along with that because we all want to fit in. None of us enjoy being seen by our society as intolerant or homophobic or transphobic or discriminatory in some other way. And Christians who stick to God's word will be called all of those things and much worse. Even when they genuinely love and care about the people they're disagreeing with. Even when they disagree not out of hate, but out of a genuine belief that God's instructions are good and wise and healthy for all areas of life. So it's a massive test of our loyalty. If a movement that calls itself Christian comes along and says, you ought to ignore certain parts of God's instruction. Just go along and say, God got it wrong here and there. He didn't get it all wrong, but he got bits of it wrong. Just go along with that and then you can fit in and still follow God. You can still be a Christian. You'll just be following God in a different way. A way that's more acceptable today in our society. Here in our passage, we're shown what God thinks about movements like that. They are rebellion against him. They are attempts to worship him the Canaanites way. And God's people need to be purged from the evil of those movements. Again, in our case, not through the death penalty, but through removal from the church. We're to reject movements that lead God's people away from his word. And see how careful we're called to be about this. Verse 14 says, when you hear rumors, 
when there's stuff flying around, then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. Not every movement is bad. Things that are fresh are not necessarily rebellious. Sometimes movements come and revive and renew the church. We're not called to reject every movement just because it's a movement. But we are to inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. We don't give it our loyalty just because lots of other people have gone with it. And if it proves to be leading people away from God and His Word, we have to be prepared to be the odd ones out and reject it. So as we sum this up, here's the reality for God's people. We live in a world that rejects Him. And so our loyalty to Him will be tested. Sometimes it will be tested even by those who claim to belong to Him. So let's be ready for those tests. Let's take care now to pay careful attention to God's Word. What does it say? Let's take care now that we're committed to living according to His Word. And then when the tests come, our loyalty will already be in the right place. We're going to close with two songs that remind us, wonderfully, that as we commit to follow Christ all the way, we discover the beautiful truth that He is with us all the way. We're going to sing, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken, and then we're never alone because Christ is with us. So if you'll uh, follow them.
Thank you. 